Pardon me while I get sorted out here. My name is Gus and I'm an alcoholic. I belong to the Golden Slippers group in Winnipeg, uh, as does my protege, Earl, here, who you heard this afternoon. I call him a protege because I'm up here now and he's down there. Uh, and uh, Golden Slippers group meets on uh, Sunday mornings in Winnipeg at the Viscount Gort. We'd be glad to uh, see any of you who happen to be in Winnipeg. And I don't mind telling you that slipping is not a requirement. Uh, you're welcome anyway. I think I'm going to start by um, taking inventories. Earl's first, then my wife's. <laughs> Earl mentioned that I'm one of his sponsors. That, that That's true. I, I think uh, it's worked both ways. He's one of those people that we see so coming along in Alcoholics Anonymous recently that, that, that we didn't used to see for a long time. One of those people who comes in and within a couple of years they've got a hold of this thing and they're just running like blazes with it. And uh, I notice you've got them here too, because three of them came down to the hotel to greet us today, young men, who are obviously working at this program very hard and haven't been around long enough to have great amounts of sobriety, but they're just running with it. And I think it's just so super. Uh, Earl mentioned that he was on the faculty of at one time of one of our major universities in Winnipeg. And uh, to get there, of course, he had to attend a lot of other universities and he got a whole bunch of degrees and things. And then he, he came to me and he said, would you sponsor me? Would you, you know, help me out? And this kind of, kind of put me up against the wall because I was a bit intimidated by all this education. And you've all heard the story, though, I'm sure, about degrees. Uh, the thermometers have them, you know. And you know what they do with some thermometers. <laughs> so with that in mind, I took them on. <laughs> and it's been relatively successful in that he hasn't had a drink that I know of in that period. And I'd have known it. Um, Gail, I, I shouldn't do this to you, but she neglected to mention that she's from this part of the world. She's from Kenora, originally, or the Kenora area, and that's where I met her when I was working for the radio station there she used to work for. It. And there's a number of people here, some who are too young to remember, for I worked at the radio station in Dryden. In fact, I was the radio station in Dryden. There was one man there, and I was it. Uh, when lightning hit and knocked the transmitter off, I'd have to get in the car, run out, kick the transmitter, put it back on the air, and then run back to the bowling alley where the studio was, put on another record. It was an interesting period of my life. I don't think it was desperately interesting for the people around me because I heard a lot of them. I was... Uh, very deep in my practice of alcoholism at the time. But Tommy B. tells a story, and I don't mind repeating it because it reflects on uh, uh, on, on me in a way. Uh, he came through Dryden one time, and I'd already had a little bit of exposure to A, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But he came through Dryden one time with uh, a fellow from Thunder Bay by the name of Lackey, who some of you may have known, and uh, they stopped off in Dryden for some do that had to do with AA. Well, I knew quite a bit about AA, and they stopped off, and of course they had to do a radio interview. And I was zonked right out of my skull, uh, but I was on the air, live. I could function pretty well. And I got Tom B. and Lackey in the studio, in the bowling alley, and I interviewed them. And in the process, I made a tape of it, and I gave it to Tom, and he'll tell you the story if you ever see him that it was probably the best radio interview that he'd ever had done by anybody. And I don't remember doing it. <laughs> he says he's still got the tape. I hope he has. One day he's going to let me hear it, I'm sure. My only qualification for being here is that uh, 
about nine and a half, a little better than nine and a half years ago, I went through a course of treatment at a hospital, and since that time I haven't found it necessary to have a drink of alcohol. Other than that, you would, uh, you know, there's no reason for me to be here. But of course, there's more to it than that. I told you at the beginning, I'm an alcoholic. And if there's such a thing as a primary alcoholic, I'm one. Now, you'll get all kinds of discussions amongst the professionals about about alcoholics, primary alcoholics, secondary alcoholics, whether when you become one and all that kind of thing. All I know is that from the first time I took a drink, uh, I had trouble. I liked what it did for me, and you've all heard, almost every speaker that you've ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous will tell you that he liked the effect of alcohol the first time he remembers having a drink, and I'm no different. But the only difference was I kept on going right from drink one. Before I was 15 years old, uh, my father had to start locking up his liquor if he wanted to keep it around the house. And uh, my mother didn't bother because she couldn't tell when I was watering it down. But Dad liked his booze straight, and he could tell when I watered it, and he was locking his up before I was 15. So from drink one, I spent most of the rest of my drinking career looking for more. Um, I won't go into all the details, but we can cover a few of them, I think. I um, was born into a... We know, beware when a speaker says he was born. He's probably not watching his watch. But our family was fairly well-to-do. I didn't lack anything in particular. Uh, in material things, but I always felt left out a little bit on the outside, and of course that first drink changes that feeling. And uh, I was in a continuous search from then on for that same feeling again. It was as simple as that. And right after I had that first drink, I started getting kicked out of schools. And some of those schools were pretty hard to get kicked out of. Uh, but I managed, and uh, the war was on at the time. My father was in the Air Force, and... Um, it came to the age where I could join up if I had my family's permission. And that wasn't difficult to get. <laughs> uh, they signed those papers, and and I got into the Air Force where the government tried to teach me how to drive an airplane. And they sent me to a few places where they went about doing that, but it was getting a kind of expensive because we were bending them at a fair to middling clip. Um... Fortunately, for all concerned, the war ended before we broke up too many. But drinking was, as you know, in the service in those days, was no big deal. In fact, they had wet canteens where you were supposed to drink, and they were very wet. And uh, that, was no, that part of it was no big problem. The instructors were usually as drunk as the students were, and, you know, everybody got along fine, and now and again we'd crack up an airplane, and nobody seemed to care too much. There's lots of them around. Everybody knew the war was just about over anyway, so that, at that stage of the game, it was no big deal. I um, got out of the Air Force. This is what's called qualifying yourself as an alcoholic, you see. I got out of the Air Force, and uh, very soon after that, got married. And uh, I had to get a job. And I, who's going to give a guy like me a job? I got kicked out of all these schools, and all I had was... Uh, I didn't even have a pilot's license. They had the war ended before I could get it. And uh, before they'd finished teaching me how to fly this thing. I could only half fly it. So the only person who'd give me a job was my father. And he owned the company, so that was all right. Uh, I worked for them, I think for about three years. It doesn't really matter. Except that they made a mistake. They made me a salesman. And I had no met a sales manager who had an interesting philosophy. He always used to say that when you go out on the road, there's one thing that you've got to make sure of before you go out, and that is that you have two jugs. You have two 26s. One goes in your glove compartment. The other one goes in your suitcase. And as soon as you empty one, your first order of business is to replace it. Then you go looking for customers. So after I wrecked a number of their vehicles and borrowed a lot of money off some of their customers... And generally misbehaved, my father went on a business trip somewhere and delegated somebody to fire me. 
which they did. And about that time, we're getting into 1950 now. Boy, we're getting there. Uh, the flood came along. House got flooded. My father paid for the house, by the way. And uh, that didn't please him a whole bunch because I wasn't making any payments on it. And here it is underwater. Um, so I went out to Edmonton and uh, I was supposed to make my living in the oil fields. And that pleased the family a lot because I was out of sight. At least it did for a while. And we got out to Edmonton. Now, by this time, I told you I had got married to this young lady and we had a whole herd of kids, three, three to be exact by this time. And we were in Edmonton and I'm working in the oil fields trying to make a living. And uh, I was young and fairly healthy and bounced back pretty quickly. And I could climb around those things and handle uh, myself around an oil rig. And I got a job. Worked there for a short while and I learned a little bit about boilers and learned a little bit about diesel engines. I was pretty quick. And they decided that I would be fine working up on the derrick, what they call derrick man. If anybody knows the old the boil business, they'll know what I'm talking about. And you work on a platform about 90 foot up on a 120 foot derrick. And I'd been fearing this, that that they might do that, because I get dizzy on the second step of a stepladder. I'm all right in an airplane, but this podium is just a tad too high. <laughs> um, I had to climb 90 feet up. And the only way I was going to do that was drunk, I can tell you. So that's what I did. I'd get drunk, but I'd go into the technicalities of the oil business, but it doesn't matter. Just just believe me that when you climb up there, uh, you've usually got to stay up there for a, quite a long period of time because uh, you've got to work up there for a fair while. And so I'd get drunk and I'd climb up and you'd put a harness around yourself and it was tied into the derrick. And I was all right once I got tied in. I could work, except I was just a little shaky. And there's fellows working 90 feet down below me and I'm at the top end of a 90-foot piece of steel, it's a little bit dangerous for the fellows down below. Not only that, I had to climb down again, and I'd been sober by this time. So, the only answer I discovered to that was to take some more up with me. And that was all right, except once I backed into the steel on the derrick, and that Mickey broke in my back pocket, and it was a shade painful... And those fellows down below wondered what was dripping. <laughs> we parted company, and my wife and children parted company with me. They left and headed back home, and I was in Edmonton with no job. Uh, I had one other job in there. Perhaps I'd better tell you about that, because it has some significance. Uh, there was, I went to work after I got fired from this outfit for an oil well supply company, and the fellow's name, oddly enough, was Brandy. Now, Brandy and his wife were wonderful people, and they were born again before it became fashionable. Uh, they belonged to some um, outfit, and they were going to save me. And they really were wonderful people. They tried very hard, and they knew the kind of trouble I'd been in, and they gave me a job anyway, because they thought they could help me. And they tried very hard. I wrecked two of his vehicles, I borrowed money from all his customers, and uh, eventually even he had to let me go. I'm pleased to say that at one time, not too long after I um, started getting with this fellowship, I was able to get him on the phone, he was very old, and he, his wife had died, but he was aware that something good had happened in my life, and... Uh, I hope he feels that he had something to do with it. Probably did. Anyway, I'm in Edmonton. This is a very bad period of my life, especially with the police chief sitting just down the way from me here, because I had no place to live, and I had uh, no money. Consequently, I was a little bit dangerous to be around at that time. Like, if you let me stay with you for a while, best you don't leave your wallet around. Um... My father had some business friends in that city, and I would call on them now and again and try and borrow money, and if I couldn't borrow money, I'd at least try and get in their house, because if I did, I'd leave with something I could sell. That was a very bad year. I visited numerous police stations and uh, got acquainted with the undersides of some bridges and various flops and what have you. It was a very discouraging year. It was not what you'd call a high point of my life. 
My father heard about all this, and he got a little bit tired of hearing about his friends getting ripped off, and he got a hold of me somehow. I don't really remember how. And he said, best you get back to Winnipeg. All right. He said, I'll send you a ticket. I said, all right, right away. Wheels started turning. As soon as the ticket came, I went roaring down to try and cash that thing in. I mean, what else are you going to do with it? Uh, he was no dummy. He had made it non-refundable. And then he made another mistake. He accepted a long-distance call, collect, from me, in which I told him that I had no money to eat on the way back to Winnipeg. Did he think that was right? In those days, they used to wire money around. Do they still wire money? I don't know. But he wired me some money, and there was about $20 or $25 involved. I forget. I know it was enough for two or three jugs, enough to get me to Winnipeg anyway, comfortably. I arrived back in Winnipeg, and I was absolutely thunderstruck when I got off the train, and there was nobody there to meet me. I could not understand it after I'd been away all this time. And nobody met me. I think I had a dime or a nickel after whatever the phones take took in those days. And I phoned, said, I'm here. And there was sort of a silence. I don't remember who answered, but somebody answered. There was silence at the other end. And somebody said, well, we'll see you when you get to the house and hung up. <laughs> I didn't have time to tell him I didn't have any money to get to the house, even for bus fare. So I got there. I don't remember how I walked, I guess, or I hitchhiked. I don't remember. It doesn't really matter. But this was in 1955, and they gave me a room, and they sort of left, locked up the booze, and proceeded to leave me alone, as long as I left them alone. But I was back in my home territory, and I had no trouble operating around Winnipeg, because I knew where to go, and I could hustle, and I knew what to do, and who to see, and what have you. So I, I got the booze I needed, where I needed it, and... Uh, one Saturday afternoon, it was actually it was a Sunday because I'd been out drinking on a Saturday. I was reading this, this Saturday paper on Sunday. That's it. That's important. I don't know why. <laughs> Except that there's a supplement in it, as there is in most uh, Saturday papers now. And it had, you know, the section, leisure section or whatever they call it. And they had an article in there about some guys in Akron, Ohio and New York and what have you and all around the country who'd formed this outfit called Alcoholics Anonymous and it talked about a fellow doctor and a, and a stockbroker and it talked about all these things. It wasn't the original Jack Alexander article or anything like that. It was just an article in a newspaper that somebody had written to fill as a filler. But it did contain those 20 questions that some of you may have seen. They used to use the 20 questions a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, the theory is that if you answer yes to one, you're probably an alcoholic. If you answer to two, yeah, you know, you're getting pretty close. Three, for sure you're an alcoholic. And uh, I answered yes to 19 out of 20. <laughs> and, and I lied about the other one. <laughs> and, and, and I decided right then and there, you know, back in 1955, I decided I'm an alcoholic. And that seemed much preferable to being nuts. I didn't connect the two, you see. I thought they were different. <laughs> There's an old saying saying, what is it? They say we're all here because we're not all there or something. I don't know. But... I got uh, this idea in my head that I'm an alcoholic and this is great. And I was shaking. It was Sunday. I'm in bad shape. Saturday was a bad night for me anyway. And Sundays were worse because, you know. But I, oddly enough, I knew somebody in AA. This lovely lady who was a friend of the family's. And she'd been in a terrible mess. And I think she was probably one of the first lady members of Alcoholics Anonymous in Winnipeg. And she was a very good friend of my mother's. So good a friend that I called her my aunt. She wasn't my aunt, but I called her Aunt Kay. And Kay is long gone, but... But she was a gorgeous woman, just absolutely fabulous. And I called her up, and I said, Aunt Kay, I think I've got a problem i got to talk to you about. And she said, I know you got a problem, and I'm glad you're coming over to talk about it. Uh, she'd just been waiting. So I got over to her house, and there wasn't much around in those days. This was in 1955, remember. And the first thing that happened when I arrived on her doorstep, I was shaking so bad she offered me a drink. And I thought that was very, very strange. She thought I was going to have convulsions or, or you know something right on her, step, her doorstep there and she offered me a drink she was willing to taper me off and that they did that a lot in those days uh, because there weren't all these detoxes and treatment centers and what have you around and usually it was one AA would have to babysit another one and quite frequently they would, uh, they would taper a fellow off rather than have him go into convulsions because you couldn't get hospitals to take you in and treat you for uh, 
for alcoholism. They'd treat you for anything else you wanted, including dandruff, but they wouldn't treat you for alcoholism. And uh, there weren't very many places around. So she offered me this drink. I said no. And we started to talk, and she put me in touch with the Winnipeg group. Now, I shouldn't say there were no treatment centers at the time. There was one. It wasn't exactly a treatment center. I'm just throwing this in just to tell you the way the conditions were in those days. It was a place on Mayfair Street in Winnipeg, and it was run by a lady named Ruby. Now, Ruby's long gone, so I can reveal the fact that she was also an alcoholic, but she was a practicing alcoholic until the day she died. And she ran this kind of rest home, uh, or nursing home, if you like. And if you went in there on your own with a little bit of money and wanted to dry out, that's fine. Uh, she'd take you in, but if you had any money, she'd bootleg to you, too. So it wasn't very successful. Uh, but if an AA member took somebody into Ruby's, that was a different story. She had something in her mind about Alcoholics Anonymous, and she would not let any person who an AA member had brought in have a drink. In fact, the first thing she did was take their pants away from them. That was operating on the theory that nobody was going to run down Mayfair Street without their pants looking for a drink. More often than not, she was right, but not always. And a doctor would come around there once in a while and give uh, the, uh, if somebody was about to go into convulsions or something, they'd give them peraldehyde, which I believe was the Valium of its day. Um, it worked very well, except when somebody had had it, you could smell them in the next room. It seemed to ooze through the pores of their skin, and it's terrible stuff. It did the job, though. Um, I guess a lot of people were saved a lot of trouble by that, and it beat having nothing, I'll tell you. Anyway, I spent 11 dry months with the Winnipeg group, fighting them all the way. I told them how wrong they were. They had these books, and they talked about prayer, and they talked about higher powers, and I related it to all the wrong things. Uh, they also played cards in the back room, which I didn't think was too bad. And I kept telling them that if they'd leave all this stuff out of their program, that they'd probably had a good thing going, but... Uh, you know, with all this prayer and God stuff in there, how could they expect, you know, to keep intelligent people like me around? Um, but I did stay around. I stayed around for 11 months. And I was long enough to get a job, a good job. Those of you who were around at that time and flying with what was then Trans-Canada Airlines will be encouraged to know that that's who gave me the job. Uh, I had a little bit to do with passenger safety. In other words, if something happened to the airplane, I was supposed to get you out. Uh, that may be encouraging, too. Uh, I was a flight steward and then purser and then a passenger service supervisor with that airline. That was before it became Air Canada. So that goes back a few years. And uh, our airplanes were things like DC-3s and North Stars and... and uh, just before they fired me, I think I did the first the inaugural flight of the first Viscount that arrived in Canada. It's very discouraging. I read an article the other day where the Aviation Museum in Winnipeg has just installed a Viscount as a heritage aircraft. <laughs> and when I was last flying for a living, that was a new airplane. <laughs> That's very discouraging. Uh, it's, it's, it's like being somebody came up to me today and said, My, you look prosperous. No. And 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 my wife calls it fat. It's it's difficult. Life gets tedious. I guess I better tell a story at the risk of 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 people having heard it before I heard it on the tape, which a great many people have heard. So um, my apologies off the beginning if if you've heard it before, but it's just the one, the one about the lady who walked into the tavern uh, with, with with a goose under her arm and there's a, drunk, there's a drunk sitting at the bar and he says, Lady, what are you doing in here with that pig? And she said, That's not a pig, it's a goose. He said, Ma'am, I was talking to the goose. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Father will forgive me. It's it's off a it's it's off a it's off it's off a tape by Father Joe Martin. So, 
Anyway, I proceeded to try and destroy Alcoholics Anonymous from within uh, for that year. Uh, until one day in Montreal, I was on a layover, and this I've been sober about 11 months. Now, I've been going to meetings. I've been going to all these meetings at the Winnipeg Group, telling them how wrong they were. I was going to a group in Toronto. I was about to get a cake from there. I was going to a group in Montreal, and they handed out uh, poker chips every three months um, of, that you were sober so that, uh, you know, you could keep, at the end of the year, you got a medallion. So I had three medallions coming up. I had a pocket full of poker chips, and one day I walked out the front door of the hotel and into the bar across the street and walked up and sat down and ordered a drink. Just as simple as that. And I drank it, and then I drank a whole bunch more. And then a girl came up and sat beside me, and she said, would you buy me a drink? I said, sure. And I bought her a whole bunch of drinks. I don't know whether I should finish this story. <laughs> but I'm going to. And uh, this girl... Gail hates to hear this story. <laughs> this girl sat down beside me, and I bought her a whole bunch of drinks, and this was fine. And then she said, perhaps we should go somewhere. And, of course, this visions of what came next went through my mind, and I thought that was an excellent idea. And uh, she's, we got up to leave, and she said, perhaps I should explain. This is on the way out. It, it's it, it's going to be um, like uh, $20 for me and another 10 for the room. And I said, whoa, because I just spent all my money <laughs> buying her drinks, and I thought we were going to go up to my room. <laughs> and that wasn't the name of that bar at all. But those things happen to alcoholics. That ended our relationship right there, by the way. <laughs> I um, ended up in the radio business in Kenora, but not before I learned a game that I'm going to tell you about. It's called the hospital game. I got fired by that airline, by the way. Eventually I worked for them for long enough. For they, they, why they fired me doesn't matter. They promoted me a couple of times. They fired me, and uh, that was, I deserved to be fired. I'd been bezeled from them. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's not right. (laughs) And they caught me, and they didn't prosecute me because I had enough money coming back, a pension fund, one thing and another, another floating around, that um, they they took that instead. And I think they were a little embarrassed at having hired me in the first place. But uh, I escaped prosecution for that. And uh, But I did learn uh, what I call a hospital game, because here I am in Toronto with no job, no money, nobody, and I don't know how it came across my mind that the place, the thing to do is to go see a doctor. And I did. I went to see a doctor, and he sent me to a psychiatrist. And he heard me out, and he decided there's something strange about this man. I never mentioned drinking. I never mentioned a thing about that period of, uh, in in, uh, in AA. That didn't enter the conversation at all. I was just nervous, you know, depressed. You know, I've only been pouring gallons of depressant down me for years. No wonder I was depressed. But I never told him that, and I got into a hospital in Toronto Psychiatric. And there was a doctor in there, and if doctors get their degrees by doing theses, do they? I don't know. I want to ask him. He didn't get that kind of a doctorate. Um he got it off me. Now, this man would come into my room every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he'd inject me with some substance which made me float off the bed about that far. And I've got to tell you, it'll replace scotch if they ever get it on the market. <laughs> it was really great stuff, and he was I was to tell him all about my childhood and my relationship with my parents and um, my brothers and sisters, and this was going to tell him if, uh, you know, what was wrong with me and He'd be able to cure me. You know, heal. Well, all I had to do was tell that man the right thing on Monday, so he came back on Wednesday. And then tell him the right thing on Wednesday, so he came back on Friday. And that was all I was interested in. And I kept that up for a long time. Now, he either got his degree or something happened and he quit eventually. But it was a long search. Somewhere on there, there's a file that has this very involved story about, completely made up, about my family and my childhood and everything that kept this man interested for several months. (laughs) And I learned the right language, and I also learned that when things get too tough, I could get into a hospital to get in from out of the rain. 
And that's what I proceeded to do for a long time. I made a lot of hospitals for depression and anxiety. You've got to be careful. If you ever decide to go this route, don't get too sick. Because they've got some very nasty treatments. But if you get just sick enough so they give you the pills or the needles or something, you know, that's just kind of pleasant, you're all right. But if you don't, you get zapped. I escaped the zappery, but just by the skin of my teeth a couple of times. you got to tread a very fine line. And this carried on to a variety of jobs and what have you until I, I eventually made uh, Selkirk Hospital near Winnipeg. It was a mental hospital. You may be or may not be familiar with it, but there was a fairly sharp doctor there who, two things happened there. One is, I discovered I made a mistake in going to Selkirk. It was not a nice place. It may be now, but it wasn't in those days. I don't know. Uh, but also, there's a doctor there who wrote Chronic Alcoholic all over my papers. And uh, from then on, it was just a little more difficult. I couldn't get in to hospitals anymore for anything other than a real physical reason. And from then on, every time I got to a hospital for whatever reason, and I, I think I've lived in hospitals most of my life, um, this chronic alcoholic greeted me. I got into the radio business, as I'd said, up in uh, Kenora, Dryden, messed around all up through this country. And uh, the chief remembers me from there, those days. There's a lot of things the chief doesn't know that I hope he doesn't remember. Um, but I remember the chief, too. And there were some good times, and there were some bad times. And there's some amends that should be made in parts of this area that probably will never be made because of that phrase in our book that says, except when to do so would injure them or others. Some good things happened. One of the good things happened was that I met my wife. Proceeded to put her through years of hell, but it was good for me. I lasted at that Kenora radio station for uh, five years. I was between Kenora and Dryden. Uh, I worked for them. They fired me four times during that period. They rehired me three times. You'll note the discrepancy. <laughs> By this time, Gail and I were married, and we made our way to Winnipeg, and I got a job at a radio station in Winnipeg, and I stayed there off and on again for pretty close to ten years. In and out of hospitals again, but now I'm starting to get in and out of hospitals for physical reasons. Miguel mentioned the first one was ulcers, and that's fairly common among alcoholics to get ulcers. Nothing unusual about that. It is a tad unusual to go in the day before your operation with two bottles of whiskey in you, though. Uh, the doctor's faced with a difficult proposition. When you're coming out of the anesthetic, you're also in withdrawal from alcohol. And between the two, uh, you're liable to do strange things. And I did. I quit breathing. And they don't like that. It raises hell with our mortality statistics. And I ended up in the intensive care unit, as Gail told you earlier, and she was told that she was likely to become a widow momentarily. And um, uh, they had opened up my throat with a tracheostomy and was, had machine breathing for me. And uh, I came to under these conditions. And I can remember writing a note to the doctor after I was able to, because I couldn't talk, of course, with this thing. And I said, am I going to make it? And he said, I don't know. That was encouraging. <laughs> and they proceeded to tell me throughout the time period I was up there that if I ever drank again, there was no question at all I was going to kill me. And you know what I did the day I got home from the hospital? I, of course, drank half a bottle of whiskey, only I drank it in a quart of milk. And that made perfect sense. You want to talk about insanity? <laughs> I can talk to you about insanity. That seemed to be absolutely sensible. What is it? Uh, Earl mentioned it earlier, and we were talking about it before, that uh, Bill said in one of his talks that uh, insanity isn't the things that you do while you're drinking. Everybody does those. Insanity is reaching out and taking that drink and telling yourself that this time it's going to be different. And I did that so many times. I could give you another hospital chronologue here because I've made it twice more into intensive care units for almost exactly the same thing. 
various other bits of my bod that they wanted to remove. And I neglected to tell you, they took out two-thirds of my stomach the first time. There wasn't a heck of a lot left to remove, but they found out a few more things. And all related to the amount of drinking I was doing. Finally, the station I was working for in Winnipeg. By the way, they still I was still working in between all this period. I was drinking, I would say, on an average of 226s a day, um, with serious drinking on weekends. Um, I, I'm tempted to say, I take my wife's inventory again and say that perhaps she's just a, a bit slow, and that she didn't mind this. And uh, I, but I could function, and as she says, I was home. Uh, the reason I was home, she didn't tell you though, but I can tell you, was because I wouldn't pay those bartenders for that kind of price for a drink when, for the price of about three drinks, I could buy a bottle. If it had been the other way around, I wouldn't have been home, because I didn't much care what happened to them or me. It was a very bad situation. But Gail wanted me there, and I was I was there. That's why I was there. Eventually, 7 o'clock news one night didn't go on the air because I was fast asleep on top of the news. <laughs> Twelve minutes later, I was out of a job again, and I needed a hospital again because the rent hadn't been paid for a long time. There was no food in the house. The only money coming in was what Gail was bringing in. She's working out at the university. Fortunately, because that's the only thing that kept her and the children fed. And I needed a hospital. And you know who got me in the hospital? Those guys who 17 years before I'd been abusing so badly. They were around and sober, and when I called for help, they were there. They always is. They were there. And they got me into the Grace Hospital. Grace Hospital would not take, no hospital would take me for treatment for alcoholism. My record was just no good. I had to have some minor surgery. The doctor said he would do it if uh, I stayed in the hospital for about ten days before he, uh, he operated, so he knew I was dried out. Did that, transferred over the psychiatric ward of Grace Hospital, and I've got to repeat almost exactly what Earl said. I have, earlier, I have no idea why this time uh, things worked, and all the other times I've been in the hospital, it didn't. These same losers, I used to call them, were coming around and taking us to these meetings, and, uh, and I had to listen to these same people say these same things, and I listened to them this time. I still argued, I still fought them, but I started to lose the arguments, because they were sober, and I wasn't. And uh, I wish I could say that well, the day I went into that hospital was the day I uh, took my last drink, but it isn't quiet. I went home for Christmas. And one of the doctors there, the doctor who had been treating me wasn't there at the time, and there was another one there who would come in to cover over Christmas, and he wouldn't let me go home unless I took antabuse. So, that made me angry. I was, wasn't very well. And he handed me this antibuse pill, which I was to take then, and then a little box of some more, with two or three more, which I was to take during the rest of the, this Christmas weekend, one a day. And I thought to myself, well, I'll fool, fool this guy. I'll put that thing under my tongue, and as soon as he turns his back, it's gone. Then I'll be able to drink. Now, I've been in this hospital about three or four weeks, and I'm, I've been sober, you know, and I'm starting to, to get connected with AA, and things are starting to look up. And as soon as he did that, I, all I could think of was he wants to stop me from drinking, and I'm going to drink. Well, you know that guy stood there until that pill melted. And, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever tasted antabuse. You know, usually you, it, it doesn't taste very good. And I spent that whole weekend trying to get a drink past that antabuse pill. And we were talking about that with somebody earlier who drank on top of antabuse, and uh, and it, it, it's uh, very unpleasant. Um, I won't go into the clinical details, but it's very unpleasant. And that's when I learned that that fellow who invented that little U-shaped piece of carpet that goes in front of the t- 
toilet bowl, you know that one? He was an alcoholic. Uh, he spent some time there. He had to be. Nobody else would invent a piece of machinery like that. And again, with apologies to Father Joe Martin, uh, he always says that the other guy who was an alcoholic for sure was the guy who invented that toilet seat that has a little hole in the front of it, you know. He was tired of getting hit in the back of the head with it. Anyway, I got back to that hospital, and, I, and, and for some reason or other, they didn't kick me out. And for some reason or other, I started to go to meetings, and boy, did I start to go to meetings. They let me out of that hospital, and I was scared to death. I knew I couldn't make it on the outside. I knew absolutely for sure I could not make it on the outside. And I started to go to meetings. I went to meetings in the morning. Fortunately, I'm in a large city where there's meetings morning, afternoon, and night, and I went to them all. And this is one of the things that made it so very, very tough on Gail because she'd been told by this gentleman that he that she didn't have to go to Al-Anon, and all of a sudden she used to having me around, and I wasn't around at all from then on. I had to go to these meetings. I made up my mind that I was going to stay sober if it was possible. And the only way I could think of was to go to meetings. I asked this fellow to help me and be my sponsor, and he'd said, Gus, he said, I only deal with winners, and you look like a loser to me. And he left. And I knew enough about AA. Remember, I'd been in before that the gay alcoholic stayed sober by helping other alcoholics. And here I'd handed him one, me. And he left. But he came back a day or two later, and he knew what he was doing. And he came back a day or two later, and he said, Gus, I'll take you on. He said, I only ask one thing of you. And, of course, he was lying. He conned me. He asked 12 things of me. What he said was that I was to do exactly what he said. And I said, you mean I'm going to have to pray, don't you? And he said, yep. And I said, but I don't believe in anything like that. I said, I, I always considered myself probably an atheist, certainly an agnostic. And I said, I just don't believe. He said, How can I pray to something? And he said, you're going to pretend. And I said, I'm going to feel awful silly. He said, yeah. And he was right, I did. But I did it. And I did that for a long time. And you know, once I started to do those things, those 12 things, to me they're not suggestions. It says suggested there, but they're not suggestions to me, I'll tell you. I have to do them. My life depends upon it. But I started trying to do those things, and things started to happen in my life that, well, there's no way in the world that I could have stayed sober on my own, and I stayed sober. There's absolutely no way in the world. Even the chief psychiatrist at that hospital told me when I went in there that it was a waste of time, me going in there, because I was going to drink as soon as I got out, and I didn't. That was a strange thing. I didn't. I kept going to these meetings. The fellow who'd fired me from this place I was working got me some part-time work back at the same place where I'd been fired from. Within six months, I was back on staff again. That just doesn't happen in our business. I began to look forward to Gail coming around, although she was having a terrible time because I wasn't around, but I began to look forward to the times I did spend with her. That was unusual. These losers at this group that I was going to began to look good and they began to sound like they made sense. And I'd known some of these turkeys before when they were drinking. And they began to be pretty good guys. It took me, you know, I'm slow. It took me a year to realize at least that they weren't changing at all. It was me. It was just my attitude that was that was changing. And it was very, very gradual for me. It says that the desire to drink will be lifted from us in our book. And... uh some it's lifted quicker than others. Uh, it took a full year, I would say, before I was, could be comfortable. That's the wrong word. Before I dared be around alcohol. I stayed very, very clear of it. I was, as I say, I'm slow, and I had, I had trouble. I didn't drink. But boy, I didn't want to be around it. I wouldn't go see my mother. My mother always had a bottle of scotch out. So I talked to her on the phone. And after I started to visit her again after that year, I told her why I hadn't been around. She said, why didn't you tell me? I'd have put it away. I said, hell, Mom, don't you think now I don't know where you put your booze? 
why it wasn't the thing. I just had to stay away from it, and I did. Now, I've already told you that I was thought I was uh, probably an atheist, certainly an agnostic, and I had to explain all these things that were happening in my life. And how do you do that? I, I, I had trouble there until I decided that, well, I, I'll do it by not explaining it, and that makes sense to an alcoholic. I just put it down to a straight cause and effect really. thing. If I did these things, that happened. And I went along like that for a long, long time. If I did the things that said in this book, I could A, stay sober, and B, live reasonably comfortably. Now, there's no way in the world I realized that I could stay sober. Eventually, I realized this, that I could stay sober without the intervention of a power outside myself. And that power, you know, you've heard people say, well, you could take that chair, that table, or and all that kind of, I, I've never been able to handle that one. Uh, what is it the fellow said on that tape? You could use a coffee cup, you know, and that would be kind of interesting come birthday time, you know, my, my sponsor's in the dishwasher. <laughs> but it's people, it's people who give us the example. I had to latch on to the people who were successful in the group I was going to and stick with them very, very closely, and I did that. I did what they told me. I did those steps. I was lucky, very, very lucky, I think, because I no sooner started to go to this group than a series of what uh, we referred to there as step meetings started, and it was for beginners like me, and it was a very small group. There was about eight of us, and we went into this room by ourselves, and we had a kind of a group leader, and we started on step one, and we stayed on step one until everybody was satisfied they knew what it was, what it was about. And then we went to step two, same three, three, four. Four was murder, because every week they'd, they'd say, well, have you got it down on paper? I'd say, no, but I sure thought about it a lot. <laughs> and they kept going back every week, you know, until everybody had it on something down on paper. Now, nobody read it, but you were able to say, and they knew that you had it down on paper. Step five, when we came to that, wow. Like, uh, you know, I'd be going to talk to somebody. And I still had this thing from step four. And I felt like gilded. If anybody ever saw this thing, I was for the rope. And I hid it. I hid it under the floor mat in the trunk of my car. And just dreaded driving down the street because the next guy coming up behind me was going to rear-end me and all these pages were going to be all over the street. And I'd go to jail forever and ever. Amen. And uh, finally got to step five, and this won't mean anything to anybody who isn't from Winnipeg, but at that time, I don't think it was legal to take a step five in Winnipeg unless you went to Reverend Bruce Miles. It seemed that way. Uh, anyway, so I went to him, um, and uh, there's a few others now who do, do legal step fives, Father Ampson and a few others, but uh, no, it just seemed that way. I went to him, and I thought that when you came out, I read in the book that you're supposed to feel all these things, you're supposed to go and take your book down off the shelf and meditate and think about what you've accomplished up to this point. And I remember I walked out of his office and I didn't, had been in there such a long time and he practically fell asleep. In fact, he confesses that he occasionally does fall asleep during step fives. He's done so many of them. That, anyway, I got out there and I had a, a quite an expensive parking ticket on my car because it had gone past the four o'clock time and there was a tow truck getting ready to hook onto it and I got home and there was a horrible mess there that I had to get involved in and it was not what you'd call a pleasant experience that that day. I, I remember wondering what all this thing was about. Why did I bother? I should have stayed in bed. But we got through it and it did mean a great deal. It was, I think it was probably the turning point in my AA life. Because after that, things started to smooth out. I got rid of all that garbage, as they say, and things started to smooth out. And getting the other steps done was, by comparison, relatively easy. Um, I already had a list of people to make amends to. The number one one was sitting right here, and you heard her earlier today. My next problem, though, over the next few years was to get her into Al-Anon. Uh, she told you er, today that it was three years after I sobered up that she got into Al-Anon and that somehow or other she knew who to call. Well, I'm going to tell you how she knew who to call. <laughs> I was convinced she was going through my pockets, so I had them filled with Al-Anon literature. 
And the guy who ran our corner garage was in AA, and his wife was the local, is matriarch a good word? She'd started a whole herd of Al-Anon groups in the area. And uh, Susan's name and phone number was on every piece of Al-Anon literature. So when Gail said she knew where to call, one day it just came into her mind. I can tell you how it came into her mind. You don't mind? She does. I'll get it later. <laughs> but anyway, she got into Al-Anon. I remember that first night she went to that meeting. I, I, I know it's unusual for an AA speaker to talk about Al-Anon, but I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes doing it, and, uh, and I'll tell you why when I'm finished. I remember her going to that first Al-Anon meeting. And I didn't know where she was going, and she never went out without telling me where she was going. And this night she went out, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because we were not, we did not have a good relationship. And then she came back a couple hours later, and she had that little ODAT book under her arm, and a bunch of Al-Anon literature, and she came in the door, and I didn't dare say a word. I thought, if I say anything, she won't go back. Because I knew unless she got some help uh, that I couldn't give her, I'd already made all the mistakes in the book by telling her she was sick. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Me sick? You're the one who was in the funny farm. <laughs> That's the reply I got. But anyway, she got into Al-Anon, and that saved us. AA saved me. And Al-Anon saved us. So there are two important dates in my life in connection with Alcoholics Anonymous. The first one is the my dry date, of course, and then the equally as important, I feel, is the date that Gail got into Al-Anon because it saved us, saved our relationship, saved our marriage. And as Gail said, we have, we communicate now. We're good friends, too. We prefer to be together. We do things together because we prefer it that way. Uh, it's, I don't like going places without her. She tells me she feels the same way. And I think that's kind of a good thing. Uh, we just are able to relate on a level that I didn't believe was possible. And I put that down to, uh, let me put it this way, these fellowships. Because you can't say it's one any more than the other. After all, they stole it from us. I'm glad they did. If you pardon me, Father, what is it they call them? Ladies of Perpetual Revenge? <laughs> is that all right? <laughs> well, we can laugh and we can joke and we can do all these things, but it I'm so proud of her. And, you know, I'm so grateful to the fellowship and to my higher power, who I call God, that I really can't express it in in the way I would like to. Gail told you that she was a lady who was afraid to get on a bus because people were looking at her. She's now working for a major university, <laughs> another one of those, in Winnipeg where she has the highest non-academic position that it's possible to get in her faculty. And she's done that in a period of seven years since she got into Al-Anon. And uh, uh, my belief in the necessity, the necessity of both people in a relationship belonging to these fellowships is just, I believe it's an absolute necessity. You can take, uh, you can disagree with me if you like, just don't tell me about it, you'll hurt my feelings. Uh, you know that anything I say up here, by the way, is my opinion and, and has no bearing at all on any anything that AA or AA has no position on any of these matters. One more thing that I've got to give thanks for. Three years ago, roughly, you people saved my life again. You don't know it, but I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, I had been suffering some chest pain. And in a typical alcoholic fashion, I ignored it on the theory that if you ignore it, it'll go away. And it didn't. And I found myself in St. Boniface Hospital 
one day it got a little too rough, and I called a hospital, just called an ambulance, and uh, Gail was told that she was probably going to be a widow very shortly, and they did six coronary artery bypasses on me in St. Boniface Hospital. Now, I came to after all this commotion, and you talk about post-operative depression, or just plain depression, i got to tell you, I was down, you know, I had the poor me so bad, I didn't think I was ever going to get over it. I can remember my sister coming to visit just after I got out of the hospital. All I could do was cry. But the people in my group and the people in Al-Anon, the people around came around, and they got me out of that, you know. They just told me how fortunate I was that I was still alive. And I didn't think of it that way. I thought, why did this happen to me? I promptly redoubled the number of meetings I was going to and realized that I'd been kind of drifting away a little bit. But I'd never have got by that without without you people. And I don't think Gail would have got through it without her Al-Anon group because they were always there. I used to wake up from, you know, they'd keep you under pretty heavy sedation. And there'd be one of the guys from the group over in the corner sitting in the chair. Gail would be there. One of them, the poor soul, I no sooner got out of the hospital and he began to have chest pain. They took him in and did the same thing to him. And uh, he's out doing fine right now. But we'd never been able to survive that kind of thing without you people. So our, my gratitude is just unbounded. The only thing... I've got left to say, and that's directed to anybody here who may be fairly new. It's just so wonderful to see so many of the younger people coming in now. We've had them in their very low teens come around to our group. I find that just absolutely fantastic. And they stay, and they start working, and they go through treatment programs and they come into we've got a teenage treatment program going in, in, in Winnipeg now that, that is just unbelievable and these kids come in and they stay and I just think it's so marvelous so for the new ones here old or young just keep coming around but don't get the idea that so many people have said that it's going to rub off on you. The only thing that's going to rub off is the nap off the chair unless you do something about it. There are 12 steps involved in that in, in this program, and I firmly believe that you might get sober on one or two, but you're not going to be very happy about it. And if you want quality sobriety, go after it. There's 12 steps there, and you do them. What Bill did when he wrote those steps is he gathered, as Earl said, the wisdom of the ages, really, all those principles have been around a long, long time. But what he did was he numbered them. He numbered them. He said he wrote them in about half an hour and then he numbered them. Which to me means that two comes after one and three comes after two and four comes after three. And that's the way I had to do the steps. And again, please, this is my opinion, that's the way they have to be done. And if you stay around your group, if you stick with the winners, stick with the guys who've got a little bit of sobriety in them and know what they're talking about, there's a saying right across there that says, listen and learn. Don't do what I did that first time. Just keep your mouth shut till you know what you're talking about, which I did the second time around when I finally learned to listen. And... uh Things are absolutely guaranteed. There's a number of promises made towards the end of the uh, main part of our book. And if you do those things, they're absolutely guaranteed it'll happen. And I firmly believe that. Now, you've taken the time and trouble to ask us to come up here, and I'm just so grateful to you. Where's Betty? Thank you very, very much. You've pulled together a conference here that uh, 
I understand it's your first try at a at a two day conference, and if that's a first try, I don't know. You should have done it a long time ago. You've done a terrific job, and thanks very, very much for inviting us.